Well, the set, today is December 30th, only a day or two away from a brand new year. And over the last couple of months, I've been thinking about a theme for 2019 for our church. And when this particular verse came to mind, I knew immediately that this was going to have to be it. This was going to be what we would emphasize in 2019 for our church family. The more I thought about it, the more I realized that this could be something that would influence not just a few things we do as a church family, but something that if we could really get a hold of this verse, if we could really get a hold of this concept, it would truly influence everything that we did as a church family. And it could be, if we really got a hold of it, as a bunch of individuals, something that would influence not only what we do as a church and how our leadership leads our church, but how individuals, all of you, could be affected. This is a concept so rich that it could literally change your life. And this is it. He must increase and I must decrease. He must increase, and I must decrease. And my plan before every sermon that I preach in 2019 is to ask you two questions. I'm going to ask you who must increase, and I'm going to ask you who must decrease. So let's practice now. So when I say who must decrease, the response would be Christ. When I say who must decrease, the response will say me. So who must increase? Christ. Who must decrease? Me. Christ must increase and we must decrease. These are inspired words from John the Baptist. But what brought on these famous words? Usually when there's something that is said, it's in response to something else, right? When you think of December 7th, 1941, we often think it's a day that lives in infamy, right? The president said that and we remember it was his response to the great tragedy in Hawaii. But what brought on these words? What could bring on such powerful words for John to say, He must increase and I must decrease? Look again at our text in John 30, beginning in verse 22. After this, Jesus and his disciples went into the Judean countryside, and he remained there with them and was baptizing. John also was baptizing at Anan near Salim, because water was plentiful there. And people were coming and being baptized, for John had not yet been put in prison. Now a discussion arose between some of John's disciples and and a Jew over purification. And they came to John and said, Rabbi, he who was with you across the Jordan, to whom you bore witness, look, he is baptizing, and all are going to him. John answered, a person cannot receive even one thing unless it is given him from heaven. You yourselves bear me witness that I said, I am not the Christ, but I have been sent before him. The one who has the bride is the bridegroom. The friend of the bridegroom who stands and hears him rejoices greatly at the bridegroom's voice. Therefore, this joy of mine is now complete. He must increase, but I must decrease. So you think of the stage being set for this great verse, verse 30, the stage is set between verses 22 and 24. 
The text says that Jesus is off in the countryside with his disciples and they're baptizing there. And the text indicates that Jesus is spending a whole bunch of time. he's, He's not rushing around at all. That's the place where he is. But the specific action that Jesus' disciples were doing was baptizing. They were baptizing people. We, we know from John chapter 4, verse 2, just a few verses after this, that Jesus Himself did not baptize people, but He instructed His disciples to do the baptizing for Him. And not too far away from where Jesus is, is preaching for sure, teaching and baptizing, not too far away from there was John the Baptist who was doing the same. He and his disciples were baptizing in that area. And did you notice what the text said specifically? Because water was plentiful there. And so like any good Baptist, John knows that in order to properly baptize someone, you need more than a handful of water. So he's baptizing in a place where the water is plentiful. And so there they are, John and his disciples baptizing. Jesus' disciples are off baptizing. And what ends up happening is this discussion starts bubbling up among John the Baptist's disciples. Now this is certainly different for most of us because we grow up in this time period where in order to be educated or to learn something, we go to, to school, right? Uh, we end up going off to college or maybe you get a master's degree. Like that's how you get educated, But in these days, the way they're getting educated oftentimes is by hanging around with somebody who's really smart. So you have the disciples who are hanging around with Jesus and spending day after day after day. That's how you learn. That's how you learn. As Jesus is interacting with people, the disciples are learning how he does that. As Jesus is teaching, the disciples are learning that as well. But Jesus' situation with his disciples wasn't at all uncommon. This was a normal thing. You see that John the Baptist even has his own disciples, doesn't he? That he's interacting with them. He's teaching them. He's preaching. They're listening. As he's talking with people, they're listening. How is John reacting? So this is a very common thing. We're used to seeing Jesus with his disciples. We're just not very used to seeing somebody else with their own disciples. And you get the indication of what's really going on within this discussion in the end of verse 26. When John's disciples say to John, Look, he, Jesus, is baptizing And all are going over to him. So what's happening is the disciples of John are watching all of the people of the area begin to flock to Jesus. They're beginning to follow after Jesus instead of following after John. Seems like everybody likes this Jesus guy. They're flocking to him instead of to John. And John's disciples, who are certainly loyal to him, They want John to succeed. They want all of the people to follow after John. They want John to baptize the most people. And so what you have developing here among John's disciples is this party spirit. This sort of tribalism. They didn't see John and Jesus as the same team. These disciples of John, they were on team John the Baptist. They had determined that they were going to do that. And they were upset that everybody was flocking over to Team Jesus. As one author has said, here we see the tone, here we see tone of the chief threats to our usefulness to the Lord. A desire for personal prominence that results in envy and a party spirit. These disciples were were envious. They were developing this party spirit. They were envious of the masses of people that were going over to be baptized by Jesus' disciples and to listen to Jesus' sermons instead of listening to John's sermons. And before we get too far into this passage, let us all be sure to recognize that we are not immune to this party spirit, are we? 
John's disciples were in the middle of watching all of these people flock to Jesus in droves, experiencing the jealousy and envy that comes along with watching people flock to another. Ultimately, what they don't realize or really care to realize is that this riff among John the Baptist's disciples is coming at the, the expense of the name of Christ. It is a complaint that Christ himself is having success over John. And how easy it would be to look over these words of John's disciples or to think about how silly that they were being. How silly it is to complain that Jesus is having success over in this area while you might not be experiencing the same success in this area. How easy it is to spin down this road ourselves. God has blessed this church with conversions. People have been baptized. Most of you have come here in the last several years. God is working in Windsor Christian Fellowship. I'm thrilled about that. But if you are going by the metrics of others, our church is not a large church. And sometimes when you're in a smaller church, it can become very easy to become incredibly tribalistic. It can be so easy to begin to get that envious spirit where that's just rearing its ugly head in you when you look at the church down the road and you get a little bitter. When you look at the amount of baptisms that another church has and you get critical. And some of you who know me, you know that this is easily developed, has easily developed in me at certain times, something that I've struggled with. The tendency that we all have is to develop this tribalism. We think in an isolated fashion about our own little church here, our own little kingdom. Like we want Jesus to be big in Windsor Christian Fellowship. You can get like tons of amens about that. But what about Jesus being big in other churches? We want Jesus to be big in our own little kingdom. And we're not that concerned about the flourishing of other churches, which is terrible. We should desire and long and pray for the flourishing of other churches. If you don't care about the church down the street and their growth and their health, then you are not being biblical. You you really ultimately don't care that Jesus is increasing in central Maine. If all you care about are these four walls. If Jesus is increasing in Cornerstone Christian Fellowship in Vassalboro, or in South Somerville Baptist Church that we prayed for today, or South Hope Community Church, or Penny Memorial Baptist Church, or any other church in the area, then praise be to Jesus, right? That he is growing and increasing in other places. I'm on, I'm on the email list for Cornerstone and Vassalboro, which is where I used to work before I came here. And, and in their email, they're, they're talking about how there's people who have to park off-site and they have to shuttle people into their, their building. Like, how awesome is that? Are you encouraging that Jesus is increasing in another church in central Maine? Or what about when the church down the street is experiencing the revival and many souls being saved that we're praying for to happen in our church? Like, so be it. If that's the way the Spirit of God is desiring to move and to bless other churches with conversions, then praise be to Him. Don't let that develop envy in you. Let that develop praise in you. I hope you don't see other churches as competition. As one author once said, when you view church as a business, you view churches as competition. But we are not in competition with anybody. We want Jesus to increase in Windsor. And we want Christ to increase 
in Somerville and in Augusta and all around. Why do you think that we pray for another church every worship service? Very practically, because I don't want you to develop such a small view of God's kingdom that we are the only players around. I want him to be magnified in our church. And I want him to be magnified in other churches. That Jesus would be big and increase in central Maine. And so this tribalism begins to bubble out of John's disciples. And you see John begin to respond in verse 27. And this is where we're going to spend the bulk of our time this morning. By looking at three points from verses 27 to 30. Which are all on the back of your bulletin if you'd like to follow along. But the first point that I'd like to emphasize is this. That if we're going to magnify, exalt, and glorify Christ, if we're going to see Christ increase, we need to have the right understanding. And what do I mean by that? Look at verse 27. John answered, A person cannot receive even one thing unless it is given to him from heaven. You yourselves bear me witness. And I said, I am not the Christ. But I have been sent before him. I think, this, I think it's displayed here that John has a clear understanding of, of at least two things. He understands God's position and he understands his own position. He understands God rightly and he understands himself rightly in light of who God is. John says a person doesn't get anything from heaven unless it is given to him or anything at all, unless it is given to him from heaven. And what John is doing there is he's, he's actually refusing to use God's name. He views that as a holy name. So when, when he's referring to heaven, and he is specifically referring to God. Like you don't get anything unless it comes directly from God. All I have needed, your hand has provided. Right? Like That's what we think. Like Everything we have, from our clothes, to our health, to our food, whatever it is, everything comes from God. And that's what John is acknowledging here. That a person doesn't get anything unless God gives it to him. You don't receive anything unless it's directly from God. And this this helps John immensely. Because when you have the right understanding of God, and that He is the one who gives everything, it frees you from the temptation of what He's giving somebody else. And so you're thankful and you praise Him for what He has given you, and you're thankful and you praise Him for what He has given somebody else. John knows that anything good that is happening in Jesus' ministry is good for the kingdom. John knows that if God is blessing the ministry of the Messiah, then John has something to be thankful for. And so with this in mind, it helps him to rightly understand himself. John knows that he is not the Messiah. I mean, doesn't he say that in verse 28? He says, I am not the Christ. John knows who he is in the light of Jesus. He knows his place. He's not seeking to outdo the Messiah because he knows that would be a worthless pursuit. He knows he was meant to be the forerunner of Jesus. I mean, there's no doubt. Think of John, and we just celebrated Christmas, and certainly you probably read those passages at home. But John would have probably very well known the story about how Elizabeth, his mother, had him inside of her womb, right? And her relative Mary comes and Jesus is inside of her womb. And do you remember what John the Baptist did when Jesus and Mary came present? Like John is doing somersaults in his mother. Right? He's just going nuts because he knows, even as an unborn child, that he's in the presence of Jesus. John understood his position his entire life. John knew the whole 
point of his existence was never going to be to build himself a name. The whole point of John's existence was not going to be to have a long and successful career. John knew from jumping in the womb to eventually having his head land on a silver platter when he was killed. He knew the entire point of his life was meant to point to Jesus. That is the whole reason John the Baptist was even existed. To point to Jesus. To say, prepare ye the way for the Lord. To say, behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. John's life had an exclusive purpose to be the forerunner of Christ, to point to Jesus. And friend, there is no other reason for your life either. The point of your life is to point to Jesus. Your whole life's purpose is not to build your own kingdom and to point to yourself. It's to point to and to glorify Jesus. I love what one author said about John. It did not bother him in the least that his star was declining with the rising light of Christ. And if we're going to straighten out on this, it's going to require sincere humility and repentance. If you're not going to live your life for you, it is going to require a deep humility and a deep repentance for pastors and church members alike. Repenting over the fact that we so often treat our lives, our own little kingdoms, right? And we so often take our church and we treat it like its own little kingdom and we want it to reflect us. I want to have a successful family because it's a reflection of me as the leader of my family. I want to have a successful church because it's a reflection of me as a leader in the church. That's not what God wants. And it requires a deep humility and a repentance to say, Jesus must increase in my home and I must decrease in my home. If I'm doing a good job as a dad and a father, Jesus will get bigger than me. If I'm doing a good job as a pastor, it's going to be Jesus getting bigger than me. That we alone belong to Him and the point and purpose of all of the roles we play within the church and within our families is that Jesus would increase. We have to have the right understanding of God and ourselves in light of Him. But second, like John displays for us, we need to have the right attitude. And this flows from the right understanding. When you understand rightly, you can have the right attitude. Notice in verse 29. The one who has the bride is the bridegroom. The friend of the bridegroom, who stands and hears him, he rejoices greatly at the bridegroom's voice. Therefore, this joy of mine is now complete. So again, when you rightly understand yourself in light of God, you are free to have the right attitude. I love the illustration that John uses to show us the kind of attitude that he has concerning Christ. He has zero issue with Jesus. There's no envy. He doesn't watch all the people flock over to Jesus and grow envious. He's thankful. He knows his role. And the way he puts it in this illustration is it's like the role of the best man at the wedding. But in John's day, the role of the best man was a whole lot more than the role the best man is now today. It was actually much more time-consuming and weighty 2,000 years ago than it is now. Listen to how one author described the role of the best man 2,000 years ago. He said, the friend of the bridegroom had a unique place at a Jewish wedding. He acted as the liaison between the bride and the bridegroom. He arranged the wedding. 
He took out the invitations. He presided at the wedding feast. He brought the bride and groom together. And he had one special duty. It was his duty to guard the bridal chamber and to let no false lover in. He would only open the door when in the dark he heard the bridegroom's voice and recognized it. When he heard the bridegroom's voice, he was glad and he let him in. And he went away rejoicing for his task was complete. And so the friend of the bridegroom, this best man, plays a vital role in the whole process of a wedding. I mean, he's arranging the wedding. He gives out the invitations. He oversees the entire... I mean, imagine how terrible these weddings must have been with a man overseeing how everything gets done, right? So the best man at the wedding is really the wedding planner. He does a million things for an event that ultimately doesn't have him at the spotlight. doesn't have all that much to do with him. He does everything so that the bride and groom can stand at the center and to enjoy the spotlight. Like how weird would it be if you went to a wedding and suddenly the best man was thrusting himself to the center, standing in the middle of the room, ascribing glory to himself, patting himself on the back. Or think of how odd it would be for the best man to stand and to covet the woman that his best friend is about to marry. I've had the opportunity as as a groomsman or a best man uh, at six of my friend's weddings. And in none of those times did I stand there wishing that I could marry the woman that he was about to marry. Not all of these girls, they were, they were great girls marrying these girls who loved the Lord, but in no way was I standing there wishing that it were me marrying that girl. I was happy for them. I rejoiced with them. And so it was with John the Baptist. When he considers the bridegroom, and when he considers the bride herself, he stands off in the role of best man and says, this is the match that should be. Not me. It should be Christ and his bride. John didn't do the work of the forerunner of Christ begrudgingly. The text says he did it with joy. And now as his role was coming to an end, he could rejoice. It was as though he was there standing at the bridal chamber in the dark. The bride is in the chamber and the groom is coming from celebrating and he hears his best friend's voice. He knows it's him and he lets him through and he can go away rejoicing. Know that all of his job was through. He understood rightly which caused him to have the right and joyful attitude. Friend, is this the kind of attitude that you have as you're living your life pointing to Christ? Is this the kind of attitude that we have as a church? We have a joyful attitude in pointing other people to Jesus. Not, Not amassing our own kingdoms, but amassing His, pushing toward His, pointing to His. Why is it that people outside of the church have such a negative perspective of the people who are inside of the churches. I'd say they have pretty good reason to. So many Christians don't live their life with the purpose that John had, with joy that John had. John the Baptist lived in the wilderness. John wore camel clothes, Matthew 4 tells us. He ate honey and grasshoppers. Like John's life had one singular purpose, nothing fancy about it. And he did it with joy. John is joyful in regard to the task that has been given to him. Brothers and sisters, do you have the kind of attitude that John the Baptist had? We all play our roles within our families. We have all been gifted in various ways in order to serve this church body here. Do you serve with joy? Do you point to Christ with joy? The right understanding leads into the right attitude. 
And having the right attitude will flow into the right response. Look at verse 30. John famously says, He must increase, I must decrease. Over in the book of Luke, John the Baptist says something there that displays the same kind of heart that he has in John 3.30 when he says, He who is mightier than I is coming, the strap of whose sandals I am not worthy to untie. Jesus is mightier than me. John's like, don't look at my strength. Look to the one who is coming. Look to the one who is mightier than I. I'm not even worthy to unstrap this guy's sandals. I'm not even worthy to be a slave and to stoop down, untie his shoes that have been walking around in the dirty streets all day. I mean, do you hear the humility and the meekness of John the Baptist? I am unworthy. He must increase. I must decrease. One author said that the last words of John the Baptist to be recorded in this gospel form surely one of the greatest utterances that have fell from human lips. And I agree with him. These are incredible words. But the reality of John the Baptist's life is not just that he was good at throwing out one-liners, but John lived John 3.30. He lived in a way that Jesus was increasing and he was decreasing. He must increase. I must decrease. Must means must. Like He doesn't say that, you know, Jesus really should increase and I really should decrease. Maybe if I can take the time in a new year in 2019, I'm going to make sure I take a few minutes to make this happen. We all know it doesn't work that way, right? The fact is that Jesus must increase. I must decrease. Friend, look over 2018. Honestly, Did Jesus increase in your life? Did Jesus increase in your life? Did you decrease? Like a good best man or a maid of honor, did you consistently step out of the way, promptly, with the right attitude at all times, for Jesus to receive the glory? Did Jesus increase in your life this year? Did you decrease? Less, less of me and more of you, Lord Jesus. And for whatever Christ needs to do in order to increase through your life or my life is what he needs to do. You realize that there is nothing too extreme for Jesus to use to increase in our lives as a church, as individuals, as families, whatever. Like if Jesus has told you to pick up your cross and to follow after him, this tells me that the final moment of our lives could potentially be hanging on the cross that he told us to pick up in the first place. If it would magnify and exalt Jesus to white Brandon Dyer off the face of the planet this afternoon, then it's got to be that way. If people would trust in Him and believe and grow and Christ would increase in your life, if wiping me off the face of the earth would do that, then fine. Because He must increase and I must decrease. When your life is all about Jesus being increased and you being decreased, you will know a little bit of the joy of John the Baptist. Friends, our lives must be about becoming smaller, not greater. Not self-esteem. Self-esteem doesn't get you anywhere. Christ being esteemed gets you where you need to go. 
It's more of Christ in us. Less of Brandon. Less of you in you, right? How I desire that over the years of knowing each other, you could say to me, I see less and less of Brandon. I see more and more of Jesus. And how I want to look at you as the years continue to march by and see that there is more and more of Jesus specifically in you and less and less of you in you when I first knew you. Dr. Seuss, sorry. But Paul says in Galatians 4 that he is in anguish until Christ is formed in the people there. He's in anguish over that. Until Christ is formed in you. And this is the whole goal of my ministry among you. At Windsor Christian Fellowship, that Christ would be formed in you. That He would increase in you. Less of us and more of Him. All of this is antithetical to making much of a, of, of a platform for yourself. It's antithetical to self-promotion. It's antithetical to the whole notion of fame. And although that's true, there is something incredible about the kingdom of God. That it seems to turn everything on its head. It turns everything upside down. That it's the small things that become great. And the great things that become small. It's the slave who becomes great. John the Baptist lived his life decreasing. He lived his life increasing the name of Christ. Yet Jesus says what about him in Matthew chapter 11? He says, among those born among women, there is none greater than John the Baptist. Well, how can that be? John says he needs to decrease. And Jesus says, there's nobody who was born among women that was greater than John the Baptist. And the reason he could say that is because John genuinely did live his life in a way that was decreasing. And Christ made him great. And this is due to the principle of the kingdom being true. That whoever would be great among you must be your servant. And whoever would be first among you must be your slave. Friend, if you're going to be great in the kingdom of God, we must learn to have the right understanding of ourselves and of God. We need to have the right attitude as we serve Christ in joy. And we need to respond in the manner of John the Baptist. That he must increase and we must decrease. I read a, this week a couple of times of the great preacher in London named F.B. Meyer back in the 18 and 1900s. And I use the word unfortunate for lack of a better word. But F.B. Meyer had the unfortunate opportunity for his life to be bookended as a, as a preacher by two other fantastic preachers. In his younger years, when he was preaching, Meyer uh, was preaching at the same time of one of the greatest preachers who ever lived in Charles Spurgeon. And Meyer would literally stand outside of his church building on a Sunday morning, and he would see the people flocking in droves to the Metropolitan Tabernacle to hear the Prince of Preachers, Charles Spurgeon, deliver sermons. Spurgeon ends up dying, and Meyer continues to preach. But as Meyer's continuing to preach, there's another great preacher that pops up in England named G. Campbell Morgan. And F.B. Meyer, a great man of God in his own right, again experienced the jealousy that accompanied watching another pastor's church grow to overflowing with people while his own church didn't. But then Meyer, in that second bout of jealousy with another great preacher, he began to be convicted. He was convicted over his envy. He was convicted over his own tribalism. 
his own party spirit, the way he viewed so small the kingdom of God. And what he began to do upon being convicted was he prayed that God would bless the preaching ministry of G. Campbell Morgan. And it wasn't long until Meyer's church began to fill with people. When Meyer began to really decrease, Christ increased. Brothers and sisters, this is our theme as a church this year. And I pray that God will burn this on our hearts in such an unmistakable way that Christ would increase and that we would decrease. Father, I pray that you'll help